Section 12. Reproducing the Army in America. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. So far, we have traced the beginnings of the Army in the United Kingdom, but would the general desire or be able to extend it to other countries? With regard to the need for it, there is now, at any rate, no dispute in any Christian country, for almost all intelligent persons, whatever may be their own creed or want of creed, admit the presence in their great cities, if not elsewhere, of only too many of this sort of persons to whom the army has proved useful. But there has been no country in which the need for, or possible value of, the army has not been at first hotly disputed. We have seen how desperately it was at first opposed in the country of its birth. And that could not have been possible had not so many really religious people looked upon it as an un-English sort of thing, American in its ideas and in its style of action. When it was beginning in Scotland, Many said that it might be tolerated amidst the godless masses across the border, but that its free style of worship, especially on the Lord's Day, could not but be a scandal in the land of Sabbath stillness. Whilst as to Ireland, we were assured that our outdoor proceedings must needs lead to bloodshed. When, however, the general resolved to send officers to America, there was hardly a voice in either church or press which did not ridicule the idea of our being of use there. And in the case of almost every other country, the same prejudice against English people, having the presumption to think that they can give lessons in true religion to any other nation, has made itself more or less felt even to this day. But happily, the general never took counsel with flesh and blood upon such questions. He knew that whatever differences might exist between one race and another, there was everywhere the one sad similarity when it came to neglect of God and the soul. That the army must adapt itself to each new population he had always taught but that it would ultimately succeed wherever there were masses of godless people, he never doubted. Really, the first extension to the United States came about, however, by no planning of his. A family belonging to one of the home corps emigrated in 1879 to Philadelphia, where they commenced to hold meetings there meeting with such rapid success that two corps were raised before the officers for whom they pleaded could be sent to them. When the general paid his first visit to America in 1886, we had already 238 corps in the Union, under the leadership of 569 officers, mostly Americans. Ten years later, there came that terrible blow to him and to the work, when his second son, who had been entrusted with its direction for a term, left the army and founded a separate organization. Notwithstanding the misunderstanding which followed and the check to our progress that was necessarily involved, the army went steadily forward, 
and the general visited the country from time to time, receiving on each occasion a very remarkable welcome. The appreciation of his leadership was always of the more value in the United States, because the disinclination of the American people to accept anything like direction, let alone command, from this side of the Atlantic was always so marked. It is this fact which gives such special value to the sort of experiences we are about to record from one of the latter tours of the General, that of 1902-3. Summing up the journey and its general impressions to an old friend, he writes, Well, I have been busy and no mistake. Day after day, hour after hour, you might say minute after minute, I have had duties calling for immediate attention. Oh, it has been a whirl. But what a wonderful rush of success the nine weeks have been since I landed at New York. The people, the press, the dignitaries of all classes have combined in the heartiest of welcomes ever given in this country, I suppose, to a foreigner of any nationality. It has been remarkable and indeed surprising for it was so largely unexpected. I have just come into this city of Kansas. The two largest hotels have competed to have the privilege of giving me their best rooms with free entertainment. A monster brewery that illuminates the whole city every night with a searchlight has been running alternate slides, one saying, Buy our lager beer, and the other... General booth at the convention hall Monday night. The building for my meeting tonight will hold 8,000 people, and on Saturday, 4,000 tickets were already sold. You will be a little interested in this because you will know something of the difficulties that seemed to lie ahead of me when I started. God has been very good, and I hope my campaign will do something towards the forwarding of his wishes in the country. The reception at New York was one of the most enthusiastic the general ever had. At four o'clock on the Saturday morning, enough of his followers and friends to fill fifteen small steamers had assembled, so as to be sure to be in time to meet his liner. By way of salute, when the great steamer appeared, they discharged seventy-three bombs, one for each year of his life as yet completed. The New York Herald said of his Sunday there, 8,000 people heard General William Booth speaking yesterday at the Academy of Music. The rain had no effect in keeping either Salvation Army people or the general public from the meetings. About one-third of those present wore Salvation Regalia. General Booth displayed wonderful energy throughout his fatiguing day's work. His voice has great carrying power, and the speaker was distinctly heard throughout the auditorium. Despite the fact that they could not gain admission to the building, at the evening service people remained standing in the drenching rain from 7.30 till after 9 o'clock to see the general leave. At the close of his last address, says the Times, 167 men and women had been persuaded to his point of view and went to the mercy seat. 
how generally the whole country, and not merely the central areas, was stirred by the mere arrival of the general, may be guessed from the following words, taken from the Omaha Daily News article, of the Monday for its readers through faraway Nebraska. One of the arrivals on the steamship Philadelphia is General William Booth of the Salvation Army. That vessel never carried before so great a man as this tall, white-haired, white-bearded organizer, enthusiast, and man-lover. Wherever men and women suffer in sorrow and despair, wherever little children moan and hunger, there are disciples of William Booth. The man's heart is big enough to take in the world. He has made the strongest distinct impact upon human hearts of any man living. This is a man of the Lincoln type. Like Lincoln, he has the saving grace of humor and sense of proportion. There is something of the mother heart in these brooding lovers of their kind. There is the constraining love that yearns over darkness and cold and empty hearts. Big hearts are scarce. In an age of materialism and greed, William Booth has stirred the world with a passion for the welfare of men. His trumpet call has been like the silvery voice of bugles. His spirit will live, not only in the lives made better by his presence, but in the temper of all the laws of the future. We shall see from the welcomes given to him by great official personages that these remarks do not in the least exaggerate the feeling created all over the country by the activities of the army. Had the general merely made great proposals, he would only have been looked upon in the generally favorable way in which men naturally regard every prospector of benevolent schemes. But the country recognized in him the man who, in spite of the extreme poverty of most of his followers, had raised up and was then leading on a force of obedient and efficient servants of all men. The journey was arranged for economy of time so as to include a visit to Canada, and its general course was as follows. From New York he traveled to St. John's, New Brunswick, where the Premier, in welcoming him, said the work of the Salvation Army had placed General Booth in a position perhaps filled by no other religious reformer. From New Brunswick he passed on to Halifax, Nova Scotia, to Montreal, where he was the guest of Earl Grey, the Governor-General, Ottawa, Kingston, Hamilton, London, and Toronto. Thence he returned to the States and held meetings in Buffalo, Chicago, Minneapolis, and St. Paul, Des Moines, Kansas City, Denver, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Oakland, Omaha, St. Joseph, St. Louis, Birmingham, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Worcester, in three of which cities he conducted councils of officers in addition to public meetings. The impression invariably made wherever he went was thus ably summed up by the Chicago Interocean. No other man is general of an army of people that circles the globe. No emperor commands soldiers serving openly under him in almost every nation of the earth. 
No other man is called commander by men and women of a hundred nationalities. Aside from his power over the great organization of which he is the head, General Booth is one of the world's most remarkable figures. His eloquence stirs and stings, soothes and wins, and this eloquence alone would make him famous, even if he had never undertaken the great work he has done with the Salvation Army. As he speaks, his face is radiant with the fervor that carries conviction. His tall figure and long arms, used energetically in gestures that add force to what is said, his white hair and beard, and his speaking eyes, make him an orator whose speeches remain long in the minds of those who hear them. The feeling of the members of the army towards their commander has in it both the love and reverence of a large flock of their pastor, and added to this, the enthusiasm, loyalty, and energetic spirit of an army. Where so wonderful a journey is so filled up with meetings so described, and where from the very highest to the lowest all speak so warmly of him, it is really difficult within the limited space at our disposal to give without danger of monotony or repetition, any adequate idea of what took place. Americans are such habitual organizers of huge demonstrations, and are so generally accustomed to say publicly without reserve what they think, that the expression of what to them may appear perfectly natural runs the risk of creating elsewhere an air of exaggeration and unreality. But, if we consider that great American states like Minnesota, Ohio, and Michigan contain more inhabitants than some of the kingdoms of Europe, and that their governors are men likely to occupy the very highest positions in the government of America, we can realize how effective amongst the masses of the people the general's work must have been before such governors could be expected to preside at his meetings and speak of him as they did. Said Governor Nash of Ohio, I never had the privilege of meeting you in person until I grasped your hand upon this platform. You have not been unknown, however, to me or to the people of Ohio. You recognize the fact that you could not perform this work well without the help of God. That your work has been well performed is well known to us all from the fact that the organization you have made known as the Salvation Army has spread throughout the world, turning the feet of multitudes into the paths of righteousness and peace. It has done good. It has done a great work wherever it has gone. It is for these reasons that the people of Ohio welcome you most cordially tonight, and they and I wish you an abundant harvest in your life's work, and that at the end you may have the peace and rest and the joy that God gives to all his own good people. Similar specially religious references to those used by Governor Nash came constantly into the speeches of other leaders who expressed their people's welcomes to the general, showing how faithfully every opportunity was being utilized to exalt Christ 
amongst even the most unusual crowds assembled on these occasions. Governor Cummins of Iowa said, I have long wanted an opportunity to express publicly my appreciation of the grand, noble, and untiring work that every day is being performed by those noble and unselfish men and women who have gathered under the flag of the Salvation Army, loved and esteemed throughout the whole world. In every army there is a leader. The Salvation Army has a leader whose commanding figure towers above the Salvationists of the world and has drawn to himself more love, more respect, and more confidence than at this moment centers in any other human being. Of him it will be said, after he has passed to the beautiful shores of the hereafter, the best that can be said of any man, that the world is better because he lived in it. Lest the general should have been too much puffed up by all his successes and the praises showered upon him, God, almost at the end of the tour, allowed an accident which might easily have ended his career, but which only gave him an opportunity to show more conspicuously than ever his resolution to persevere in his ceaseless labors. It was whilst passing along a dark passage in New York that the general stumbled and, but for God's great goodness, would have fallen into a cellar. As it was, one leg was very much bruised and hurt. He thus described in writing to a friend what followed. March 13, 1903 The accident came at a very unfortunate moment, and at the onset it looked like spoiling the closing chapters of the campaign. But God is good. I was favored with the services of one of the most skillful and experienced surgeons in New York. He put my leg into starch and then into a plaster of Paris jacket, and by dint of resolution and the supporting spirit of my Heavenly Father, I went through the last meeting with apparent satisfaction to everybody about me, and some little comfort to myself. It was a great effort. The hall is one of the finest and most imposing I ever spoke in. Three tiers of boxes all around full with the swell class of people in whom you are so much interested, with two galleries beyond. It called for some little courage to rise up with my walking stick to steady me, but God helped me through. I hung my stick on the rail and balanced myself on my feet and talked the straightest truth I could command for an hour and twenty minutes. A little spectacular function followed in the shape of trooping the colors of the different nationalities amongst whom we are at work in the States, and a midnight torchlight procession with a massed farewell from the balcony of the headquarters closed the campaign. I am doing the voyage fairly well. Of course, it is very wearisome, this lying all the time. The ship is rolling and tossing and pitching considerably, and it looks like doing so until we get under shelter of the land. The probable after-effect of these distant campaigns of the general could not be better described than in the words of one of our American officers.
himself known throughout the army as one of our most spiritually minded and intelligent observers. Seventeen years ago, he says, the writer first heard the general, and it has been his privilege to hear him many times since. Each succeeding effort and series of meetings seems to eclipse all the rest. It was so in Pittsburgh, which, being one of the greatest business centers and home of some of the most virile men of the world, deeply appreciates him. He was very weary from his heavy campaign in Cleveland, but in spite of this, to me he seemed at his best. He spent no time in angling to get into sympathetic touch with them, but with the precision of a bullet he made direct for the conscience of every man and woman there. Talk about naked truth, judgment, daylight, straight preaching. We had it that night, as I never heard it before. There was no escape. Every honest person there had to pass judgment on himself. It was difficult to close that meeting. The truth was setting men free. Many wept and prayed and submitted to God, and some fairly howled at the revelation God gave them of their character and conduct. It has been my privilege to hear such preachers as Beecher, Matthew, Simpson, and Phillips Brooks, and such orators as Wendell Phillips and Goff. But the general is the greatest master of assemblies I ever met. He played on those vast audiences of judges, lawyers, ministers, business, and working men as Old Bull played on the violin. They laughed, they wept, they hung their heads with conviction. Their bosoms heaved with emotions. They were convinced, convicted, and a multitude were converted. I think at one time there could not have been less than three thousand eyes brimming with tears. He uncovered sin and made it appear as it is, utterly without excuse, and utterly loathsome. And then he revealed the love and sympathy and helpfulness of Christ, till many could not resist but had to yield. A lawyer said to me the next day, that the sermons and lecture were the most wonderful he had ever heard. Another lawyer who had been to each meeting stayed in his place till the very close on Sunday night, saying that he could not tear himself away. The common people heard him gladly, and the uncommon people were overwhelmed with admiration and conviction. A young lady belonging to one of the best families in the city just home from Paris, where she had been studying art, heard him and could not refrain from leaving the box in which she sat and going to the penitent form. She went home truly converted. The wave of power and conviction did not cease when the general left, and during the next four days we saw fifty-eight persons at the penitent form. The special value of all these American testimonies to the effect of the General's brief visits lies in the fact that they show the triumph of the war plan of God, just in the circumstances where weaklings are tempted to yield to public opinion, substitute orations for real writing for souls, 
and to press nobody to an immediate decision or change of heart and life. There can be no doubt that the Army's invariable fight against the drink has helped to make its general so highly honored amongst American statesmen. But in that, as in everything else, the important fact to note is that it was by establishing an absolute authority that he secured the faithful carrying on of the campaign against drink and every other evil at every spot where our flag flies. The eyes of the whole world have, in our day, been more or less opened to the ruinous character of the drink traffic, and the general and his forces, whilst keeping out of the political arena, have mightily helped the agitations that have ended in the exclusion of the drink traffic altogether from many states and cities, and its limitation in many ways. But much less notice has been taken of other evils, which have no less absorbed the attention and spoiled the means, the minds, and the souls of the masses. The sight daily in every great English reading city where the sporting editions of the newspapers appear ought indeed to arouse every follower of Christ. But the habit of irresponsibility that has grown up in most Christian circles has still to be fought against everywhere, and the general's persistent testimony against it, indeed the whole theory of a divine army and of war, must remain forever one of the strongest features of his life's work. The old song, Arm me with jealous care, as in thy sight to live, and O thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give has expressed the thought behind all the arrangements of our army. And it is remarkable how, in the midst of the general indifference, so large a measure of this jealous care for God and souls has been awakened and maintained. Nowhere, alas, does the theory of irresponsibility find a more congenial soil than in the very places and services where God is most feared, honored, and obeyed. His doors are indeed open to the world, but whether anybody enters them or no is the care of but sadly too few. Hymns are so announced as to make it easy for all to join in singing them, if they choose. But whether the words are sung by many, or only by a proficient few, and above all, whether hearts as well as voices are raised in prayer and praise to God, is too often a matter of absolute indifference to almost everyone. How the general altered all that wherever his influence was felt, he made all his people understand that not merely are they responsible for understanding and heeding God's commands themselves, but for enforcing attention to them, as those who must give account of their success or failure. The sister leader of some little meeting in a faraway outpost of a corps thousands of miles from the center, when she insists upon having a verse sung for the third time because, I'm sure some of you lads were not half singing, has little idea of the religious revolution she represents that the dislike of so many for any such innovations continues, 
may help to convince anyone who thinks of the urgent need there was, and is still, for the substitution of responsible for irresponsible leadership in divine service. During his visit to the United States in 1907, the general had a severe illness which seriously threatened to cut short his career. His death was indeed cabled as a news item from Chicago, but the report was, as Mark Twain would have said, grossly exaggerated. Nobody will wonder, however, at his having been ill when they read Commissioner Lawley's report. He writes, We have calculated that in the thirteen meetings of his New York campaign, the general was on his feet speaking about twenty-six and three-quarters hours. He spent less than six weeks in the country, traveled about thirty-seven hundred miles by train, spoke about eighty-five hours to fifty audiences, before conferring many hours with leading officers, and talking to the newspaper reporters in each town he visited. An officer describing his illness wrote, I never shall forget his effort to ascend the staircase of the commissioner's house on Friday morning after his victory at Milwaukee the night before. The veteran warrior had to rest his head and hands on the rail and pray, My Lord. It was clear to me that the chill he had sustained days before, and which he fought in vain against, would make him a prisoner for days. What that meant to him when he was already announced for a number of other cities can be imagined. His symptoms the following day were very serious, and one cannot but be glad that he had at his side at the time his daughter, Commander Eva Booth. Under her loving care, and with all the help of doctors and masters that could be got in Chicago, the general recovered so as to be able to go on after a few days with his interrupted tour, after which he wrote in his farewell letter to his American troops, I have been impressed with the great improvement in the devotion, spirituality, and blood-and-fire character of the forces already in existence. I have also most pleasantly gratified by conviction of the possibility of raising a force in the United States that shall not only be equal to the demand made upon it by the conditions of the country, but of supplying me with powerful reinforcements of men and money for the mighty task of bringing the whole world to the feet of Jesus." During this visit, the general and the commander were received by President Roosevelt at the White House. The general was presented with the freedom of the city of Philadelphia, and after going through the gigantic final week described alone in New York, was able to sail directly to Germany for his usual Great Repentance Day in Berlin, and he was already seventy-eight years old. Need it be said that whilst in this book little mention is made of anyone but the general himself, it not having been his habit in his journals to refer to those with whom he was for the time associating, we are not to suppose that at any rate in recent years he was anywhere fighting alone. In heaven, no doubt, 
the victory won in many a crowded building was put down to the credit of someone whom few, if any of those occupying the front of the platform, would have mentioned, but as a result of whose prayers, faith, and effort the audience was gathered or the results attained. It would have been very unfair to the great majority of his officers to have called frequent or special attention to the small English staff who usually accompanied him, for not only the commissioners and chief secretaries, but the officers of every nationality labored systematically to make the most of his visits to any particular place and to render to the largest possible extent the results of each visit permanent. This may possibly seem specially and curiously unfair in the United States and Denmark, yet it will only make the principle of this omission from the General's own records and ours the more clear. It will doubtless be expected that I make some comment upon the painful separation from him of three of his own children, which were amongst the saddest events of the General's life, and yet I feel it best to say nothing. It is not within the scope of this book to tell all about it, and telling part could only cause misunderstanding. So I leave it and hope everyone else will do the same. End of section 12. Recording by Tom Hirsch.